Welcome to the Realizing Revelation 7-9 podcast, a Presbytery of San Fernando Valley production. Realizing Revelation 7-9 means we are awakening to new meaning in Revelation 7-9, and we are working to make Revelation 7-9 a reality. I'm your host, Mark Fields, and this week we get to hang with Pastor Casey Way of First Presbyterian Church of Burbank. Casey shares with us about how he woke up to a new cultural identity during COVID. He also shares a few of the times he felt like the token person of color in leadership spaces during his ministry. Casey's so generous with his perspective. Without further ado, here's Casey Way. Hey, family, welcome to the Realizing Revelation 7-9 podcast, a Presbytery of San Fernando production. Realizing Revelation 7-9 means we are awakening to new meaning in Revelation 7-9, and we are working to make Revelation 7-9 a reality. I'm Mark Fields, the host, and today we get to hang with Pastor Casey Way. He is, come on. Uh, I want to make inappropriate jokes, but I won't. So he's on the pastoral <laughs> on the pastoral team at Burbank Press, the director of community missional community engagement, helping people to live out faith and be hospitable and embody the kind of welcome and impact and justice and presence of Jesus in their communities. I can see that within him. He started. I like outside. that title. I might change that title. Come on. <laughs> he, he started um, outside the walls church a while back. He also really helped spearhead the advancing leaders of color task force. And on a personal level, he has been a warm welcome to me as I've kind of been involved with the Presbytery and he just represents hospitality and warmth and listening and care and concern. He is that presence. So it makes sense that he would kind of be a, a lead, a tip of the spear point for what that looks like at Burbank Press. Casey, welcome today. Thanks for being here and making time to be here, brother. Sir, I'm grateful and honored. Thank you for including me in this conversation. Absolutely. So Casey, you started some of this work, what it looks like, I mean, advancing leaders of color task force. This is something that came up within the Presbytery, something that you've led. Would you share with me, I guess, I think that maybe takes us a step too far and more into what you've done around issues of race. Would you share with us who you are racially, ethnically? Would you kind of help us understand who, what makes KC KC as it relates to issues of race and ethnicity and culture? Awesome. No, no, thank you, Mark. And you can hear me okay, right? Absolutely. Yep. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, I, first, I, I think that's a great, I mean, I love the fact that our Presbytery is being courageous and continuing to walk the journey of dealing, talking, listening, having conversations about racism, about diversity. For me, myself, um, I... I may, up until about December 2020, I thought I was, uh, quote unquote, Mexican-American. My biological father, I always assumed, was uh, Mexican. His name is Miguel Macaranes. And my mom is Dutch, Leilani Vontelra. So that's a good mix right there. 
Um, and during COVID, as many people were doing, they were trying to stay busy. And my 21-year-old thought he'd have some fun and play on Ancestry.com. So uh, we did some work. He asked me how to spell my uh, biological father's last name. And I thought it was always spelled Mascaranas, M-A-S-C-A-R-A-N-A-S. And he said, Dad, go get your birth certificate. So I go get my birth certificate just to make sure the spelling is correct. And as I'm reading the birth certificate, um, I read it, Miguel Macaranas. There was no S. So for close to 54 years of my life, I thought there was an S in there. And he said, Dad, you know, your name is um, not Mascaranas. It's Macaranas. So he types it in. We submit the whole, we do whole, the whole spit DNA thing. We wait for it. Um, as we are doing this little fun father-son exercise, if you will, uh, we start Googling Miguel Macaranas. And all of a sudden, these, um, uh, God bless them, Filipino men were popping up on the web. And I had that moment where I'm thinking, this is different. This is a part of my, could this be something different in my life that I didn't know about? Um, we sent away for the Ancestry.com. It comes back that I'm 24% Filipino, um, that uh, apparently my biological father is half Filipino, half Mexican. My grandfather is 100% Filipino. And the last part of this joyful journey personally for me and, and just learning more of my own history, my own background, um, there was a cousin that found me because of Ancestry.com. His name is George. He's in his 70s. All of a sudden, he calls me out of the blue and says, hey, my name's George uh, Casey. Um, I was a kid in your father's shop growing up in Hollywood in the 1950s. Apparently, my biological father was a security guard at a luxury car shop. And so he was kind of an attendant, maintained the area. And George starts to tell me that, uh, God bless you. What a wonderful way, you know, this opportunity to meet. Um, we learn more about each other. And I asked him one big question. Tell me about my father. Was he, did he have issues with mental health? Did he have issues with addiction? Did he have issues with family, et cetera. And he said back then, and I found this really interesting, and, and this could be part of some of our conversation if you if you if you choose it to be. Um, he said, Casey, back in the nineteen in that period, in that time in the nineteen fifties, the Philippine uh, Filipinos and he as he said it, Filipinos and Mexicans all got along with each other, they fought with each other, they got drunk together, they married each other, uh, they worked together. So it, 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 as he answers my question, yes, your father was an alcoholic, um, but he said everybody was an alcoholic back then. Um, but he said at the end of the day, God bless our family because he said he found Jesus. He's a Catholic turned Christian, and that he was so excited to hear that my story of that I was a follower of Christ um, came out of a lot of growing up in a family with addiction and alcoholism. Um, and he was excited to learn that now I'm serving the local church. So again, I, I, I hope that answers some of the question there that, that, you know, my journey of learning that not only am I a person of color, if you will, um, someone who's brown, but learning, learning also the fact that my story is much bigger than I thought it was. Um, mm -hmm. And that's exciting. And it's, and it's, and you know, how, how awesome it is. And now even my sons, my family, you know, thinking, wow, dad, this is a new story. And the, the, and one more side note, and please, because this You're is exciting for me. Yeah. Great. You're great. Oh, awesome. Um, 
I, I, some of my work over the years in ministry was um, doing hospital chaplaincy. And so yeah. it, it was interesting because a lot of the hospital staff, uh, doctors, nurses, et cetera, uh, the female, in male, but female nursing staff, uh, the Filipino sisters and brothers, they would come up to me and say, Pastor Kevin, uh, you're Filipino. I said, no, I'm not. You're Filipino. I could see it. No, I'm not. All these years where I've been working with in different communities, different communities of color, but the, in regards to the Filipino community, so many people I've met over the years that said, I, you're Filipino. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm Mexican-American. And then sure enough, you know, thank God for technology and Ancestry.com, I come to find out, oh, as a matter of fact, I'm about 24% Filipino. <laughs> so, you know, again, that's kind of my story in a nutshell, um, laying the groundwork for my own issues around race. Casey, when I hear you share about your story, I'm really like alert to two things. And the first thing is that at 54, you became aware of a new reality and you began to live into a new reality. And for me, that's just this reminder that no matter how far we've journeyed in one way, when we become aware of something new, we can respond to that. And to me, when I think about diversity and racial diversity, what has happened in our world over the past just two years, I think about the the ways that what we saw with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and all the names, the list goes on and on and on. But I remember those names being this string of names that happened week after week after week in 2020 that really made us say we have to pay attention to there's something like no one could deny that anymore and whether you're 75 or 55 or 25 or even 15 and for me it was like my my five-year-old daughter at the time we were all waking up to a new reality and for me like walking my five-year-old daughter to our city hall for the first protest that she was a part of and trying to explain the complexity of there are still no bad people. All people are made in God's image, but some people right. are, are behaving in a way that doesn't reflect that. And I'm trying to have this conversation with her. I'm trying to explain to her. And we were doing Moses Bible studies at the time because we wouldn't go to church. And so I honestly just had like Prince of Egypt. Every Sunday we would watch it and just talk about different, we would read the scripture in different ways. And it just worked for us. And it was a really fun kind of family moment around that. But I think about everyone woke up to something new and so we had to be different and or we get to choose a different way forward. So I love that what you said is at 54, you created a new way forward. That's an invitation to anyone listening, no matter how old you are, no matter where you're at. If you're hoping to live into a new reality of diversity, of biblical justice, of biblical dignity and the image of God alive in every culture, reflecting God's image and goodness, we can do that. And I know that sometimes that starts with like bumbling and fumbling. That's okay. Like I think about the, I think about Bambi or the, the small deer and just the wobbling of like trying it out. Because if it's a reality you've never experienced before, it's going to be wobbly. But you can grab hold of those values, grab hold of the truths that you become aware of and just keep living after it. And it's okay to make mistakes. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way. I know that too. But that, uh, it is okay to make mistakes. Like, May we judge your your heart and the content of like where you're at and your intention. Um, and may you do, you know, th that even feels complicated too because I'm like, and let's do the work to educate ourselves so that we can make steps that are honoring, that reflect like 
respect and dignity and goodness. The second thing that I heard that you said was, hey, my skin is brown. A lot of people like I assumed I was fully I was Mexican and other people were assuming that I was Filipino. But like your journey is distinctly yours. And so now that you've invited us into your story in the way that you have, that doesn't mean that now we understand what it means to be that any other part Dutch quarter Mexican quarter Filipino person, like everyone's story is shaped by so many things that make up their culture, that make up where they grew up, the thing, the music they listen to, the music they dance to, the music they won't dance to, the foods that they like, all these things that make up culture, they are so distinct and unique. And that's what helps us to have a, a posture of curiosity and listening with one another to honor one another's stories. So those two things really came out of what I heard you say about that journey, just that small little tidbit. And so for me, Casey, when I hear you share all that, that's the kind of a background that I haven't heard for many pastors in the Presbytery of San Fernando. So when I hear that, I'm thinking, well, what is it like for you? What has it been like for you these last seven years in this Presbytery with these folks journeying, being you? What has it felt like? And so I don't know the Presbytery like that, and I don't know Burbank Press like that. Would sure, you describe sure. the makeup of Burbank Press? And then would you help me understand your feelings and what it has felt like to be there? No, Mark, that's great. Um, I think, and even just to give some clarity to that, I when I, I graduated seminary in New Jersey um, in 2003, I accepted a, my first call out of seminary in Sacramento. Um, in 2006, I came back to the Presbytery of San Fernando and was serving at a church up in the Antelope Valley, um, just outside of Palmdale. So I was up there for a few years, um, took another church for a short call, and then landed at Burbank Press. And so I've been part of the part of the Presbytery since 2004. Um, mm-hmm. Was I was ordained in this Presbytery as Minister of Ward and Sacrament. First Press okay. Burbank actually was the church that I was under care with. Uh, mm-hmm. before I went to seminary, and they were part okay. of my ordination uh, with former pastor Bill Craig, who's now retired. Um, okay. At the church right now um, they that I've been at for seven years, it, you know, I think it's they've been they've been in the city of Burbank for over 100 years, since the late, late 1800s. So mm-hmm. it's one of those mainstay churches that it's been there for a while. Um, for me, I think, so I heard that, for me, and I think I'm, I'm going to get both of your questions. I hope I get them. Um, that the makeup of Burbank Press, um, I think they've seen a change, as we all know, in the city of Burbank, that it doesn't look the same anymore, like it used to look. Um, mm-hmm. And and you can see that there's a Catholic church right next door, and they have, it's been there for a long time, and it was a private school. It was called Bell Jeff High School, and the custodian about a year and a half ago, it took me on a tour of Bell Jeff High School. And what I found interesting was right in the hallway, they had all of the original senior class pictures back from like the 1940s or something like that. And you can flip through them and it was each senior class. And you can see the transformation of the community just in those pictures because they, they, it was an all white community at one time. And mm-hmm. as you go through each generation, you get to the um, probably 70s, 80s, where now it's becoming a brown community. 
and was very mm. is very telling the story of Burbank that even you can even see and the custodian was saying that you had some you had black you had Filipino you had Armenian and we know that Glendale Burbank is becoming very much it's always been it's becoming even more an Armenian community. The mm-hmm. church itself mm-hmm. is an is an older congregation. It's been there for again, like I told you, for a while, and um, you know, just an, an older, sweet generation, some young families, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the question, um, because I know that we can go off the we can go off the road here in regards to what happened during COVID and before COVID and after COVID, uh, but mm-hmm. I think the bigger question in regards to um, how I've felt, if you will, as yeah, someone who so followed. I'm going to ask you, because you've talked about the the racial or cultural kind of dynamic of Burbank changing, the cultural dynamic of the church changing. That's I want to hear about that specifically, and then also for you specifically. I guess one of the things I want to clarify is talk to me about your whole like that whole time. So not just the Burbank oh. press time, but like what it what it has felt like to be you culturally, even you know, up in Palmdale, just that whole journey. I mean, being a young, married, unmarried, having family, but really like thinking through that cultural experience. Yeah. You know, you know, that's great. I think I'll tell one story that I think would sum this up. Um, Well, actually a couple. First, in the larger denomination and in a presbytery like ours, and specifically in San Fernando, um, because we've been mostly, again, a, a community of churches that have mostly um, members who are white and friends that are white, leadership that have been white. Um, we know, um, thank goodness for the denomination, because we know we're, we're, we're always trying to make sure there's more of a balance of leadership with um, male and female pastors. You know, some churches, we, you know, we're not, we're still going through how do we do that? How do we have female leadership? And that's another conversation for another day. Uh, but for me, um, in this presbytery, I've always, I've always been that guy. And, and, and hear this as I say this, because I know this will be listened to. It, I, I'm not saying this in a negative way. Um, I've always been that guy because I'm Mexican-American now, Filipino, if you will, that when there's a committee I get the call that says, hey, can you be part of that committee? You know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the region, um, we have, you know, we know we have the presbyteries and then we have the synod, even just most, uh, I think it was last year, getting, again, getting a call or um, from some of our leadership and an invitation to be part of a, a committee. And I think people don't, people in leadership, and I'll speak the, about this in a general way, um, a pastoral way, if you will. People in leadership sometimes, sometimes, uh, I can't get mad at them for saying, "Hey, you're the brown guy. Can you help?" Because you're, you're, I'm the token. So the feeling of, again, I didn't realize I was the token just until a couple years, two, three, four years ago. Mm. You know, especially in regards, even, and and I think there are a couple different places in my call in ministry where I just thought I was KC. But then I can go back and I can probably draw a timeline of moments in my ministry where, um, you know, we just interviewed him because we wanted somebody else. And this is not what they said to me, but I could read into it. We interviewed him because we could say that we interviewed the Mexican-American or the Hispanic uh, person of leadership. And that fills box, that checks a box. Mm. Um, 
I don't remember another. So again, I wait, I've wait, wait. That. Oh, go ahead. Before you move on, I want to hold a space for what you just said because you talked about what you felt. You talked about being able to go back into the past and to to realize a different narrative than what you believed even at the time you you became aware of some different dynamics at play before you move on i want to know what did that feel like how did you feel when you woke up to that was there sadness mourning anger frustration uh, even at the time so if right. was there like what did that feel like even at the time and what did it feel like when you look back thinking about it well, thinking about it now and back then, I think there's just still that sense of, you know, I think it makes me sad. It makes me feel sad that one of my calls in a church after seminary, I, it's a, a most, again, a mostly um, white community, a white church um, where people would come up and say, como estas, you know, and, well, you know, and talk to me in Spanish. And mm-hmm. I would respond in, I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. You know, I, yeah. um, I think there's those feelings of just because I think there's an assumption too. I think when I want, you know, I, I, being that brown person in an all white, sometimes different groups that have been part of, you, you do, you do feel a little out of place sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and I've, I've sensed that in different circles over the years. I have really good past pastor Ross at Burbank press is a advocate cheerleader of mine and my family's, um, I know he's been supportive of some of my own ministry and what I'm doing in the community. Um, but for me, that feeling of over the years in different calls, um, and that was my first call out of seminary. And I remember, and I know I'm going to go ADD for a second on you. I remember when I was interviewing um, for another place where, I, again, feeling like I'm the token guy. I'm, you know, I'm not, they're not looking at me. I, I'm the guy because, again, I checked that box. The story I was going to tell you briefly too. Another one yeah. that where I I recall one time where someone shared, there was a service that we were doing, um, and this is the part where you told me to be courageous and bold. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm going to make I'm going to make an attempt to walk to that ledge. Come on, come on. Um, there, there was a service that uh, we were part of in in the region, and so I'll speak very generally. Again, this is not with negativity. This is not with hate. This is, if anything, trying to bring my heart and try to be, I'm trying to be pastoral with this in the sense of whoever hears this. Um, mm-hmm. Being in the back of the worship service um, at, in, a, in, a partic- in a kind of a regional leadership presbytery meeting and um, having someone say, um, make reference to the fact that everybody who was serving communion um, was all white and um, making the comment of, we need more people who are, are brown up front during as the communion service was starting and asking me if I wanted to help because they realized they realized that that my colleagues that that you know that there wasn't anyone that who looked look like me mm-hmm. up there mm-hmm. and so if anything if anything like you know I when I was younger I never thought that would be a big deal but as I started thinking like situations like that where it made me feel like, okay, something's not right. And I come, and if we were to do another whole talk about, I mean, I come from kind of a middle of the road. I grew up in an evangelical church as a kid. Um, I just was naive. I just didn't, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, and, and again, if anything, mm-hmm. 
um, when George Floyd happened, and I remember being on a call when George Floyd happened, um, and it was, a, it was a leadership call, and and they were trying to figure out what to do, and God, and and I felt like, and this is where I, maybe I got to work on this in my own life and in my heart. I felt like I needed to be the one that said whether I was a token or not. I needed to be the one that said, "Hey, I will do that prayer." You know, I will, yeah. I will, I will help put that out there. You know, because again, mm-hmm. feeling the tension of like we don't know what to do, and I felt like I had to volunteer to begin that, and that's how advancing leaders of color started. You know, that that's how that. Mm-hmm. And I remember on the call saying, "You know, I didn't even know what I was. I didn't even know I was going to say that. I didn't know I wasn't talking. I wasn't planning to advertise for a new task force." And I think I probably, you know, in regards to polity, I probably didn't do it the right way. But I remember because of that volunteering for that prayer, feeling the tension in the room of people don't know what they don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden inviting the presbytery to be part of this conversation, conversation of racism and diversity. Um, mm-hmm. I, at that one point, I'm like, OK, I'm more than just a token. I have I have to bring voice and, mm-hmm. and help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make That's- sense? It, it makes a lot of sense, Casey. I, I really appreciate your courage to share that. Um, I'm I'm thinking about, uh, there's a couple of thoughts that come to my mind, but I really want to circle back to that moment where someone taps you and says, you know what, we, we need, they didn't say this, right? <clears throat> it's the complication of like, we need more representation we didn't think about that before, but when we look up and see that no one of color is helping to serve communion, that's an issue. But it is not um it is descriptive. So it's not it's not um it's just describing the system that is. It's a reflection of the leadership flow, right? Back to like how you became uh how you came to lead this this task force advancing leaders of color such a thoughtful title and i know you guys thought about that but it when you see that picture of who's serving communion it's just describing who we've been preparing how we've been identifying people and the kinds of people that feel called or feel comfortable serving and leading in this environment Mm -hmm. but for me the conversation what i want to ask you is and this is a huge question and, and neither of us have the answer for it but i can hear it's this place of like, well, what are we supposed to do then? So if we see that the if we see that there's all white people leading communion, and we have this brother, this Filipino Mexican brother in the back who's also <laughs> ordained to am, lead, yeah. yeah. What are we supposed to do? So can you share a little bit about your response to that feeling of like? How do we make the move forward? We see that this isn't what we want it to be, but how do how can people make that move forward in a thoughtful way that it goes beyond tokenism, that goes, like what could have been done in that situation or before that situation happened that would have made you feel included, that would have had your DNA on the leadership of the event versus like you being an afterthought trying to really change the picture of what is up front. Yeah, and you know what? Just the, the the last five seconds of how you frame that, I think that's I think that's the takeaway. If someone listens to this, that if if you've been put in a position of of 
casting a vision for how a worship service is going to happen within the larger region of the presbytery. Because mind you, that that experience I had that that I'm putting out there, trying to be vulnerable with it in a way that will help. Um, that just that was way before George Floyd. That that wasn't during George Floyd. That was that was that was, that was way before you know as we were still all meeting in person. Mm-hmm. Um, with with and again we've had transitions in leadership over the years, but um, I think in the moment. Instead of saying, oh, oh, look, hey, KC, what do you think? Do you want to help? Because I'm the, I think people, here, let me rewind that for a second. I think people needed before thinking of, do I have every voice up there? Do I have every person up there? Because if Revelation 7, 9, it really implies the fact that um, within the kingdom, every group Every uh, person, young and old, is represented. And by the way, Revelation 7-9 made me think of just recently, and every time this happens, at a Dodger game on fireworks night, when Mm. they let the entire city of L.A., entire stadium, come down onto the field. And I took a, I took a, uh, the fast motion video. I don't know what it's called where it makes, and you see everybody coming down like little ants really fast. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I played the video to the end where it goes, everybody starts to leave. I think every person in the city of Los Angeles is represented on that field, mm-hmm. every person. And, and to me that, that is reflective of what Revelation 7, 9 in the sense of not only present hope, but future hope that there will be one day where every voice that leaders are going to say automatically, it's not even, oh, I need token. I'm, I'm, where's the token brown person? They're automatically going to think whether that person is brown, white, green, blue, Mexican, Filipino, Asian, whatever it is, I'm going to automatically, he, she's a leader. He's a leader within our region. I want them to help lead communion. I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, we're all the people of color because I need to make balance. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to bring balance to it. It's, that's automatically, I guess it's part of their, it's intuitive. It's in their heart. It's in their soul mm-hmm. that yeah. I need to truly have. If the San Fernando Presbytery, if all of our, if the larger Presbyterian church truly, and, and again, there are pastors who get it and God bless them and they're supportive and they're behind this and they know they need to make leadership more reflective of their communities. Um, and, but if anything, the lessons learned, you know, being attentive before I say something, you know, how am I going to say this? How's this going to be received? How's this going to be received by someone I'm saying it to? Again, I can't, I have one of my best friends, his name is Marvin Wadlow. He's in his early sixties. He's African-American. He always says to me, Casey, I can't be mad at people who say things that they don't understand. My, mm-hmm. If anything, his heart breaks because going back to Revelation 7, 9, we want people to have a heart of thinking future that every person is going to be part of leading worship. Every person is going to be able to participate. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful, Casey. You know, when you started to talk about thinking about how someone hears something is an important part of cultural diversity and hospitality both ways. I love, so a couple things come to my mind. In the framework of cultural intelligence, there is one of the organizations I used to work for would think about, a lot of organizations think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this organization would think about diversity, equity, and belonging. And that belonging, and when we talk about churches, a lot of places think about you can belong before you believe here. We're trying to create spaces of belonging. But belonging means that 
I think about like a family. Like we have family nights in my family and everybody gets to put a movie in the hat. Everybody gets to say, we usually do pizza and salad and a movie. That's Friday nights for us and the kids look forward to it. It's a pillar. Everybody gets a say. Everybody gets a vote. Where are we going to get pizza from? Everybody gets to vote. Well, what movie are we going to watch? Everyone has a say. And because they're a part of making that, they feel included. It reflects who they are. So sometimes it's Harry Potter and sometimes it's uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, the new one with Gabrielle Union. Sometimes it's it's like all these different things, but everyone feels heard and feels like they belong. So my household it feels that way. And I think do our churches. So belonging isn't just like I've made space for you or I'm trying to clear space. Belonging means I'm asking you what would feel like space to you? What would feel like inclusion to you? How would you like to be included? And then that creates belonging that reflects that heart. So there's that first thing to me about that. The second thing that you said about how does someone hear what I've said as it relates to cultural intelligence, here's where I get to tell them myself. And I'm smiling because my wife is here in the room and she, uh, so I, when I took my cultural intelligence kind of uh, evaluation, so to speak, I forget, I don't know what a better word to say that. Ah, there's a better word. But one of the things that came back was that I don't, really think about the the receiver or the culture when I'm communicating sometimes I'm not thinking about how the other person holds it so I don't change how I'm communicating depending on who I'm communicating to for me I thought that was a strength because I just I feel like I'm trying to treat everyone like family and I'm not going to like switch up how I'm talking to you but I understand and, and my wife is like no you can't talk to everybody that way and we, bo- we both have different operating systems. And for me, I'm like kinship. We're all family. So like, this is just going to be what it is. But the reality right. is like, you might, you come from a different background from me. So if I say something and I'm inviting you like into my world in a way that I would invite anybody in, but if I'm not being thoughtful about how you receive it, then there's an opportunity for me to grow. So when you talked about that, thinking about how someone receives something. That's a part of it too. And none of us are perfect and we will never be perfect. And that's like the very real, like very distinct ways. When we talk about like, you're always learning, like you'll never have every audience down and that, that can create humility. So humility in the pulpit, humility as like part of the welcoming team humility as someone who's leading worship and choosing songs and choosing the language of those songs and choosing whether or not we have the words on the screen for people who are hearing impaired or whether we like all these kinds of things will never be ultimately like aware so we have to constantly be working at that how am i being thoughtful about and that should always be influenced by those the voices of those people and sometimes those people aren't around and that's like the hard part too when you're trying to grow as an organization and you don't have like you don't reflect the community you're in how can we include voices that aren't here and that's kind of like an invitation and and the joy I, i say like part of that journey towards diversity is like well how can we maybe those voices don't need to be a part of your church how can you get involved with how can you can you email the local black pastor? Can you email a local black business owner or 
a Hispanic business owner, even if it's the business owner of the fruit stand on the corner or the tamale lady or but you can start to like become like Jesus walked around like Jesus walked at the speed of walking right to three miles an hour. He's walking and he's learning from all the people and he's prioritizing all the people farthest from power. And then when he walks in these spaces that are like marked by power, he's constantly saying like, yo, this, this doesn't make room for the tamale lady. How, why would she be welcome here? She doesn't have the, like the payment to like even enter into this space. What's happening around here? So I, I think, so those are a couple of things that come up for me, but we brought up, like we found our way into the space of all the voices. When you talked about Dodger stadium on those summer Friday nights with the fireworks and stuff, um, I was going to make a joke about your Dodgers, but I'm not. You know, I think they're probably still number one in the whole still MLB, number one. <laughs> so we'll, have, we'll leave that alone. So here they we can lose one or two. Yeah. So here, <laughs> here we are. Um, so let's get into the text. I, Casey, I'm so grateful for how generous you've been with your story. Revelation is John's description of his vision that he sees while he's stuck on this island. He's writing it out. Different theologians think differently. Was he describing the fall of Nero, the Roman Empire? Is he describing a future thing that's going to happen? There's room for all these interpretations in orthodox thinking. So if we can hold hospitality and openness to that diversity, even in an interpretation of scripture, that makes us more hospitable to diversity in our own, in our churches, in our communities, all of that. So here's John writing about what he sees in heaven, um, how he sees people operating for you. Let's listen to this together. And then Casey, I want to hear how you respond on the back end of like all of our conversations so far. John writes, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from Every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne. And around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever. Amen. That's Romans 7, 9 to 12. Casey on the back end of like you coming into new awareness at 54, this journey, what it's been like to feel like a token, to be treated as like this box to be checked and the back end of all the things we've talked about so far, how do you hear Revelation 7, 9 this morning today? It, it Hope. I mean, I hope that the friends like you, sisters and brothers who are trying to create a table, a space, if you will, to have conversations that sometimes are hard, uh, sometimes that are difficult, um, a willingness to say, we want to meet every single person at 
this one table where we break bread, where we remember the body broken, where we remember the blood shed, uh, you know, that word salvation right at the end of the text, you know, almost meaning thanksgiving. So as they're singing, it's a thanksgiving for the, for the love and the grace that comes to us um, through Christ. Um, hope that people, um, one day, there's that future hope that John implies, that one day, um, every tribe, um, I even, and now I'm mixing up my, mixing up my verses, but, uh, you know, when I do, when, when I do a, a service of remembrance, when I say um, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, uh, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that one day all of us will be in that place. But today, I think I still have hope. I know it's hard. I, some days, I, I'm, like you said, like when, when we were getting ready, that you just hear the news and you just, you know, you want to bang your head against a wall. But hope that there are people who still believe that God is good, that God can intervene and bring shalom. Um, again, to think, you know, Every person who, whether they're brown, white, blue, green, black, um, my best friend Marvin always says, "I'm not black, I'm brown," and he, you know, and he he's, he he'll make that comment, and like, and and he's he's very dark skinned, but he'll, he'll always correct him. No, I'm not a black man, I'm a brown man. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. That every person in the kingdom of God is going to be part of receiving that love, and to be able to sing together with one voice, and to sing hallelujah, and to sing amen. Uh-huh. I have hope. And again, I might, after we hang up and end this, I might go, no, what were you saying? You know, Uh (laughs) Um, but I I have to, I have to hold on to the fact, and maybe this is the reformed part of me as a Presbyterian. I have to hold on to the fact that, that the cross gives me hope, Mm -hmm. that, that the cross will intervene in the most difficult hard spaces that the cross of Jesus will make it possible for people who disagree to come to a table and to actually talk and to be okay with the fact that, hey, sometimes the things I say make other people um, feel uncomfortable, you know, so that if, hey, if this conversation um, lays the foundation for future ministers or people who are currently serving in our region to be, to okay, before I say this, how is it going to be received by someone else who doesn't look like me or sound like me or act like me or think like me? You know, again, hope. I have to hold on to that. And, and, and maybe as a 54, and I know whatever classification of demographic I am, Gen, Z, Gen Xer or whatever I am, uh-huh. you know, I think there's still that, that, that how I heard hope as a person who thought he was Mexican, as a kid growing up in the church, um, that the church, they, they were my surrogate parents, mothers, fathers, you name it. The church paid for my lung surgery when I was in high school. Uh, the deacons intervened, um, an expensive surgery that happened at Huntington Memorial Hospital when I was in high school. The church, I had female leaders who were youth leaders Gail Sparks, who led me to Christ in my junior high youth group, who taught me how to read the Bible growing up in Hollywood. Um, I had people, Deborah Schieffer, Beth Nepstead, when I had my lung surgery, she brought me because she knew that the house I lived in with my stepdad, who was an alcoholic, and my mom, um, who was Dutch, was a mess, and they couldn't take care of me. And Beth invited me in for me to heal up and recover before I went back home. Mm. I had so many different people who would pick me up from my house, drop me off. And one last quick thing that John Gee 
Gary, my youth pastor growing up in high school. When my mom left us, my brothers moved out. It was just me and my alcoholic stepdad, who was white from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, we were living in a hotel on Highland Avenue next to the American Legion. And I came home and walking to the edge even more with vulnerability here. So whoever reads this, hear my heart. I mean, here's this, listens to this, hear my heart. Um, coming home um, from a youth group, John Geary, my youth pastor, drops me off on Highland Avenue on a Friday night after a youth group event at the church. I go up to the hotel room where my father and I were living. Um, couldn't open the door. Um, he sticks a $20 bill through the crack of the door late at night on a Friday night after my you pastor John drove off. And he says, go, stump, go somewhere else. Go somewhere else tonight. Stay somewhere else. And he had a hooker, a prostitute in the room. Mm. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a high school kid. My family's a mess already. And now my stepfather, my father, who I'm very grateful for, that's another interview, um, slips a $20 bill and says, go stay somewhere else. Mm. If it weren't for the church taking responsibility missionally and caring for um, the neighborhood, like myself, they didn't, my, the people who raised me in the faith didn't even know they were being hip and all missional-like. They were just loving me and accepting me. Mm -hmm. um, and even with all the issues of, you know, here's this brown kid that we didn't know what to do with, they still loved me no matter what. And, and it's because, and again, I have to, and, and circling back to that word hope, I have to have hope that things are going to be okay one day, mm -hmm. but it's going to be hard work. Mm -hmm. I have to have, that's what Revelation 7, 9 speaks to me. Mm -hmm. I have to have hope that we got to keep struggling, that we have to keep, you know, even, and then, then the last part, because I, I, I love this, Mark, thank you for letting me kind of mumble here. I have to have hope even in, in, in Christ's love that his heart breaks. God's heart breaks when the kingdom is offline, if you will. But one day, again, no more pain. When we see everybody come onto the field in the kingdom of God and every person from every walk of life is together look, sing, if, you know, see the fireworks going up, you know, amen, hallelujah, salvation is ours today. Yeah. I have to celebrate and let, I look forward to that. So mm. here again, thank you. Yeah. I went off, I went off on a tangent there, but I hope that's helpful. No, so. I, I, well, first of all, I mean, it's so helpful and I just, you know, I want to hold space and just pause because that moment that you shared about your stepfather, the rejection, the like, go find somewhere else. This isn't your place. You don't have a place. And by the way, I got to, I got to add context. To it. So sorry. I called John back up before cell phones. He was living at Fuller Seminary on Oakland Avenue. He came back down after midnight and he describes for me as he was driving down Highland Avenue. I don't even remember this. I was pulling bushes out of the ground in anger and hurt and sadness. Mm. He said, I was bawling. I don't even, I, Mark, I don't even remember. Yeah. He said, as I pulled up to the hotel, I could see what was happening. And if again, if it weren't for John, and I ended up living with John for probably three months. He was very gracious. The church found me a group home that was okay. I, you know, but then when I graduated high school, um, I became very involved in local mission in my church. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father and a minister preacher. Um, if it weren't for the, the, the local church, owning me and look beyond color if you will mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and again no one's perfect i get it but i wanted to add context to john there he came back 
picked me up and then said, okay, let's figure this out. I, I really appreciate that, Casey. For me, I assume that, but I love that, like, I, you, we can't always assume. So I love that you cleared that up and didn't leave us, leave that up for our assumption making. For me, you know, what comes up for me in this reading, and we've recorded several episodes and each of them, something new comes up for me. But for me, in the context of what you said about the Dodger Stadium and all the people that come into the the stadium to watch the fireworks after the games on on uh, <laughs> on those summer Friday nights is, you know, what makes me think of like the reason all of those voices come is because something beyond them. Like I think about awe and wonder. So like the level of awe and wonder of all these voices in the text actually makes the angels bow down. They're so, so there's so much awe and wonder expressed through this diversity and all these different languages in that are expressed to God in gratitude, reliving this moment of like hailing a king that the angels and the spiritual beings in this room, they actually bow down in awe and wonder. They're like, yo, what? This is something completely other or holy. And so even it causes them. So for me, it just makes me think like when you said that, it made me think about like a Marvel movie premiere <laughs> and like what kinds of people go to those all kinds, tall, short, stout skin. Like it, no matter what culture you come from, there's this awe and wonder about the movie, the storytelling, the relationship that has been had there. You know that like, I've had a glimpse of what's going to come. I've been waiting for this thing to happen. And like, I'm going to be there. And for me, it feels like a reminder of what are we doing in our churches that would make people feel all in awe and wonder, that would make people feel included, that make people feel a part of a team, a part of this movement, a part of this storytelling that would really create the draw in and I, I honestly don't even know if that's what we want nowadays. I don't know if like where this is Los Angeles, this is the, the the San Fernando Valley in 2022. People aren't flocking to like churches. People are staying out late on Saturday nights. But I do think we can create awe and wonder in these moments that that brings the people in the community into the room. And it, but it just doesn't look the same way that it looked 50 years ago, 100 years right. ago, 150 years ago, 200 right. years ago. That's right. And and we have to think about that, not in a way, not in, I don't know how to say this, like not in a functional way about like, what can we conjure up to get people in this space? But like, how is the spirit guiding us towards on wonder or something that is moving people into the space as what well you as moving said, people though, out. that people shouldn't be. What you, I'm sorry to interrupt. What you said, what you said about on wonder, uh, the church shouldn't be in decline if leaders, pastors, followers of Jesus made that their mission. How do we get people under the blue sky to see God at work? How do we get people to be together? from every walk of life, if they practice that and if they live that out, the church, the local church shouldn't be closing. The local church should be packed. The local mm. church should be filled because we're telling and sharing and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God right now, but also that future hope 
And again, they're not flocking the same way like they used to, and they're not coming. And we're closing churches all over the you know all over the country. But yeah. even if they just made that pit pivot that shift of how do I create a space where people see what I'm seeing as they are together with every other person from every other walk of life of what it means to show and give thanks and worship to that awe and wonder of God. Yeah. And and then we have another assumption there, Casey, uh, about what pastors are experiencing and cultivating in their own journeys. And so, right. uh, Amen. you know, it's, it, it can be, it can be a, a drudgery, so to speak, especially post 2020. I think about the pastors who've watched the community transform around them, who've watched the um, climate transform around them politically, culturally, mm-hmm. whatever the situation may be. And pastors are like, what do I do? And so I'm, I'm, it's not an indictment. No, it's just it's just to 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 be honest and say, like, well, what is a pastor's target? What is a community's target for a gathering? Is it to create on wonder? Is it to like celebrate the on wonder we've experienced throughout the week? Is it to, is it a primary storytelling gig? Is it a, so I don't know what that is, but I, I do think I just wanted to call out that assumption that like, I think ideally, yes, the, the pastor is this, is a, is a bit of a, is a, is a bit of a compass orienter who's, who's, I think I'm thinking about Moana right now. The pastor is this wayfinder whose eye is on wonder, who's finding and following the spirit throughout normal life and filled with awe and wonder and appreciation. And then, but then you take that. And and then I was going to say, and then, and I was going to like speak into the normal situations that happen on Sunday, but really what does it mean to be creative and thoughtful with each gathering? And we talked about belonging earlier. What does it look like for each gathering to be shaped by all of the cultures and the people in the room? So, I mean, we see what it looks like when, when various cultures throughout Los Angeles or the Valley gather in a different place. The black churches gather and create awe and wonder in the ways that feel you know at home to them and natural to them. And Latino churches, Latinx churches throughout the valley in one way and Asian churches in another way and white churches in another way and Filipino churches in another way. And so there's all these different like, but what does it look like to like try to create together a moment? Because like, honestly, we're going to gather and I'll give you 60 minutes or 90 minutes. And I'm going to give it to you on Sunday because that's what we've talked about. That's like what we've been conditioned to do. So like I'm going to come into this room, but I'm also now conditioned to like I'm going to listen to like the songs for 20 minutes. Then I'm going to listen to announcements for 10 minutes or God, you know, God forbid, 15 or 20 minutes. And then I'm going to listen to like preaching for 30 minutes, 40 minutes or 20 minutes, depending on whatever. <laughs> but it's like that's not to me to be now to be candid. That's there, what on wonder is in that. Okay. What, what, why, why do I need to come to that? Especially if like, I could just watch it on YouTube later when I'm doing the dishes on Thursday, why show up in the room on Sunday morning? If I'm going to experience everything the same way on video on Tuesday night. Right. Right. So there's, there's that, there's that invitation and that that's what necessitates community and diversity. Cause when the creativity of the, the gathering is dependent on, the different cultural expectations and expressions that create the gathering, then then we've done something 
Like this is a once, this is a moment. So like the Dodger game, like you buy the Friday night tickets because you know that the fireworks are happening after. That's a part of why you did that. And so anyway, I think that's some of the stuff that comes up for me around no, the Sunday gatherings. Yeah. 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 Well, Casey, I, I so, I'm so grateful for your time and your story and how generously you shared about your cultural heritage and the ways that the church has been alongside you in not just your cultural journey, but just your human journey yeah. and the pain and some of the trauma you've actually experienced. And, and it's been a part and a catalyst of your healing. And now you are a part and catalyst of healing, even in the church and even in our presbytery, you've been a part of catalyzing us towards diversity. And I'm really, really grateful for you, my brother. I appreciate that. And again, I'm honored. I'm just, I'm just a speck. I'm one of the minions of the Lord. That's all. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> we're, we're sharing in this. It's collaborative. And if anything, again, I, I mean, I'm hopeful that, that, you know, we're going to get to a place where we are being mindful and we are being discerning and we're listening to the spirit to where we, that one day we're all going to sing with white robes and palm branches. Mm. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We're, we're all going to be together holding those branches. We're all going to be wearing those white robes because it's going to be a new, a new beginning. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. That's what gives me hope. Um, so, but, and I thank you again. Thank you for being so willing to, to, create create a space for i mean i feel like i'm still young but i know i'm 54 <laughs> i'm not getting any younger but um creating spaces for multi-ethnic multi-generational voices young mm. you know and i think if anything that who knows I, I can't wait to see where um in that world of digital stuff where this could lead to in regards to our own presbytery yeah. as another mm. another avenue for, for those to listen and hear and begin thinking about what it means to be a Revelation 7-9 church. Mm, that's good. Um, that's good, Casey. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you for listening to yeah. this episode of Revelation, uh, realizing Revelation 7-9. Uh, we look forward to hearing your feedback and growing together so that we can awaken to this new kind of understanding and we can be about living into this new reality. So we appreciate you and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.